right, welcome to all of our fellow listeners and fellow sports card enthusiasts. We're glad you're here and thank you for tuning into the show. If you're new to the show, welcome to the 615 Collector. My name is Doug Turner. My partner here is my son, Brandon Turner. And we always like to remind everyone at the top of the show that we do not take sponsorships or get paid by anyone that we talk about, which is very much intentional, so that you can rest assured the information we provide is unbiased and not financially motivated. All right, Brandon, what do you want to where do you want to start? All right, uh, yeah, welcome everybody. As always, we're glad that you're here listening. Um, we have a bunch of stuff today. Um, for starters, we're going to have uh, the Card Ladder co-founder Chris McGill join us again. We're going to talk with him about the market, uh, the market indexes, but we're also going to talk some basketball with him. Um, we're going to touch on some auction results. We have some mail days. We'll do the athletes that were the jersey number of our show number. And then we will cover all the latest hobby news today in the halftime report and then film study. Um, we're going to cover NBA free agency, uh, some baseball storylines, and some hockey stuff as well. So, Yeah, lots of stuff to cover today. So jumping right in, mail days. We didn't have a lot of mail days, but a couple. We talked last time our CSG order that we had sent in the reholder to get to tens. That came back. We got that actually today. So have those in hand, which is cool. That's got we got the Jimmy Jimmy Butler rookie card, nice. the 2012 Prism and a ten. We got some nice cards in there. We've got a a Magic, a David Robinson. We've got a Bryce Harper rookie. There's a Sabrina Sabrina Ionescu rookie card and. PSA, or excuse me, a CSG 10. So a Phil Jackson from, I think that was the 90 hoop set. Oh, and we had a, uh, a Tyler Hero as well. His, uh, I think that's his rookie card from the hoops premium stock. Hmm. One that I was kind of excited about is we had Pete Alonzo out of the 2021 Don Russ. It's the Unleashed card, which I like that. I like that insert. And then this is the Raptors uh, parallel or variation, whatever you want to call it. And uh, anyway, so that one's a cool one. Pete Alonzo has been tearing it up this year. We'll talk about him later. But yeah. And then the only other mail day we had was, uh, hold on as I put, you can probably hear my slabs clinking in the background. Put those down. But the other mail day was, uh, I did find on eBay, it popped up a Joel Embiid 2019 Don Russ Optic My House Hollow in a PSA 10. So I was nice. able to snatch that up I actually made what i thought was an offer that would not be accepted and but it got accepted my offer was i'm not going to give away the exact amounts here but the percentage wise my offer was about 30 percent less than the asking price hmm. and was probably in line i think it was a little under what some of the recent sales have been, but not too far. It was, let, let's call it in line with recent sales, but that gives you an idea of what the asking was. But it's very low pop on those, at least in the PSA 10. You can get them raw, but it's actually, I, I'm at the point now, it, I feel like it's a little bit of a of a gamble sending stuff in to get graded because you don't know, you have something you think is going to be a 10, you never know, like, they're going to send it back a seven, <laughs> you know, yeah. or, you know, and then if you don't get it, then you got to deal with all that. Like if you think it's a, you know, so it's almost to me now, it's almost better just to go ahead and get the 10 grade that I want rather than get it raw and send it in. That's not always the case, but anyway, so that was the mail days. What else we got? A couple other things maybe to touch on before we jump into um, the interview with Chris and the halftime report and everything else. Did you see the – there was a game I thought – this was interesting. Have you ever heard of the fourth out rule? I have not. I hadn't heard of the fourth out rule either. But it came up in a baseball game. Pittsburgh and Washington were playing. 
There's one out. Pittsburgh had runners on second and third. And Cabrian Hayes for Pittsburgh hit a line drive to the first baseman of Washington, which is Josh Bell. Both runners took off, didn't tag up. And Bell caught the line drive, threw to third base, so third baseman could tag the runner coming from second. And they did, tagged him, so got the double play out of the inning, right? So out of the inning, and Washington goes and runs off the field. Well, in the meantime, the runner from third had scored before they, they tagged the runner out going from second to third. And so the way this rule apparently works is because Washington left the field, they all ran off the field, they were not, before they appealed the fact that the runner left early without tagging up, they were not allowed to appeal. And because they couldn't appeal, even though the runner didn't tag up, since they didn't appeal, it's a score. It counts. So he scored a run. Hmm. And oh, by the way, Pittsburgh won by one run. Eight to seven. Now that happened like in the fourth or fifth inning. So, you know, there's still a lot of other game left to play. But at the end of the, at the, end of the game, it was a one-run game. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. I had never heard of that rule before. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that before. But like stuff like that... Um... I have. Like, you were an of, umpire. Did you yeah. have to? You didn't have to no, study that. No, but like in terms of just like teams having to like appeal stuff, I had never heard of that before. But like, you know, I mean, they have to like. And in, in our league, we had to do if, you know, a runner didn't like touch home plate or something, they had to appeal it. Yeah. You know, unless you. Yeah. Unless you like you. Yeah. Even if you saw, it, you didn't necessarily have to call it. Like you, they would have to appeal, it, and if they didn't, the run counts. Yeah. And like the the catcher would have to like stand up and like on home plate and like say something to like yep. actually appeal it. And so it's just like an interesting kind of weird rule. I feel like that should be in the umps. Like, I don't know. I feel like they should be able to make that call. Yeah. That's weird. I don't know. But I mean, well, cause I guess one of the reasons they don't is cause it could be a judgment call. Right. I mean, you could go to the replay you booth. Could, you could think, yeah, that's true. Like in this situation, it would take like two seconds. Yeah, you can well, see he didn't tag up. You see, did he go back? They no. did. They Game did over. in this situation. Apparently, I think from what I read, they went to the replay. But since Washington didn't appeal it, they, even though they saw in the replay that he left early, they couldn't. The run still counted. They couldn't call him out. That's like, that's so weird. That's like, like a basketball player taking a shot after the shot clock and making it, and then counting it and saying because you don't appeal oh you didn't appeal the the shot that it was like after the shot clock violation or expired or whatever that's weird to me it is kind of able to go back and like see oh did it you know was it in his hand still or you know did he actually tag up and take that point away yeah it's weird it is kind of interesting here was another interesting stat i came across this week with golden state warriors winning the nba title steve kerr we talked about his success as a player and a coach well, he has won, as a player or a coach, nine of the last 27 years of NBA titles. Nine of the last 27. So that's 33%. Steve Kerr has either been a player or a coach. Tom Brady mm-hmm. has won seven of the last 21 Super Bowls, which is also 33%. So they both, in, in, in football and in basketball, Tom Brady's been in 30. 33% of the Super Bowl wins, Steve Kerr, 33% of the NBA Finals wins. And I think it's interesting that Kerr's won, he's won a Finals in four decades. Yeah. Which is, like, there's only, the only other person to do that's Phil Jackson. But as far as card values are concerned, Brady's rookie card, I'll use, there's a bunch of them, so I'll use the 2000 Bowman, kind of a standard basic card in a PSA 10. Pop count is 461. It sells for $7,300 roughly. 
Steve Kerr's rookie card. It's in the 1989 hoop set. PSA 10 has a pop count of 437. So interestingly enough, about the same pop count, although I think there's a ton of them raw out there. But Steve Kerr sells for 115 bucks. Yeah, he, <laughs> so, was a, he was a role player. He yeah. got most of his titles, um, or at least probably half of them as a coach. Yeah, he, so, well, yeah, he had, he had five well, as a much, player, much, four as a coach. Much better coach than, than a player, but he was a good role player. He's a good shooter. Yeah. Not, not Tom Brady by any means. All right, we had the golden auction results. The LeBron triple logo man sold. And get this, I, disappointing, I think. I mean, if you can say disappointing about a, what amounted to a $2.4 million price, but that includes the buyer premium. So the final bid was $2 million. The winning bid was $2 million, and then with the buyer's premium, it was $2.4 million. Mm-hmm. So if you could call $2.4 million disappointing, that was disappointing because I think with the amount of remember they Ken Golden had gone in Times Square there was advertising everywhere like he had gone on TV there was a bunch of you know big deal made out of this obviously Drake made a big deal out of it as well and a lot of people were saying thinking that it might surpass the Honus Wagner six point six million dollar sale well it didn't it didn't even get I mean two million you know again that's a lot of money but I think as far as what expectations were, that had to have been a disappointment. He uh, LeBron, there was actually another LeBron card in that golden auction, the 2003-04 Upper Deck Exquisite Rookie Patch Auto. It's graded eight and a half on the card, ten on the auto by BGS. It sold for 2.1 million, so it did almost as well. Which may be not surprising. It's probably how it should be because I actually think the LeBron RPA is an for me it's personal preference. I like the look of that card better. I don't like the look of the triple man logo or the triple logo man card. It just, it's just three logo man. Like I don't, you know, there's barely even picture of LeBron on the card. There's like just a little sort of, I think a kind of shoulder and up shot of mm. each of the teams he was with. But anyway, that's just me personal preference. All right. What else? Oh, let's talk grading company. We're, well, we'll save that for the halftime report. Cause okay. we're going to talk about, um, some news in the halftime report. Opportunities on fractional platforms. Let's touch on this. We've, we might make this like a regular segment where we'll kind of touch on an opportunity we find in the fractional because we've talked about there's going to be some of this stuff come up. And here was one that came up this past week. And it's and I actually checked it before we started recording. It's there right now. So a 1961 Fleer Wilt Chamberlain graded a PSA 9. I believe, I believe that's his rookie card. Um, has a pop count of just 31. And according to Card Ladder, on June 21st, so just what, a, few, a week ago, that card in a PSA 9 sold for $670,000. $670,000. Remember that number. I'm going to say it again. $670,000 PSA 9 of the 61 Fleer Wilt Chamberlain just sold for a week ago. On Collectible, there is a PSA 9 Wilt Chamberlain 1961 Fleer for guess how much? How much? Less probably two hundred and fifty-six thousand dollars. Yeah, less than half of what it just sold for. Now I realize it's the card, not the grade, but still, you normally don't see. Normally, the grades are gonna some. You know, a nine, one nine can be a little better than another nine, but you're not gonna have that big of a value difference. That to me is an opportunity on the fractional platforms. So, um, just wanted to take a look at. And by the way, and that's available right now. I went and looked at it. Um, you can pick that up right now for, like I said, less than half of what it just sold for. Anyway, 
others that we can talk about. Well, maybe we make that a regular segment. We'll touch on a real good opportunity on some of the fractional platforms. Let's let's move on. You want to do Jersey numbers? Yeah. So this is going to be quick. There's yeah. like nothing. Today's 38. 38 is a very underrepresented like number. I had a like hard that. time finding really big names in 38. Now, I'm sure there's a bunch of people and players out there that are like, hey, wait a second. But the biggest names I could find were Kurt Schilling, baseball, pitcher. He's become a little controversial ever since he retired, but uh, had a had a really good career. And Aunt Arnie, not Annie, Arnie Herber, NFL quarterback from way back when, played with the Packers in the 1930 to 1940 time frame. He was with the Giants in 44 and 45. But that's it. That, that's all I could come up with. Like there was no, I was looking for, there was nothing. Like, and I say nothing, like no disrespect to any player that wore number 38. Maybe we need to put this one out to our listeners, a challenge, if you will. Say, all right, to all of our listeners, who do you think, who have we missed that wore number 38? Who do you think is the best athlete that have wore number 38? Ping us. You go to our website. I think our email's on there. You can ping us. Ping us in social media, direct message or instant message us. Uh, maybe we'll post something on social media. We'll ask the question in our Instagram story, who was the best athlete to wear number 38? Because that's it. That's all we came up with, Kurt Schilling and Arnie Herber. Hmm. I'm not even going to pick. <laughs> yeah, you probably don't even know either one of them. I know Kurt Schilling, but... All right. All right. Well, we'll just move on. Let's just yeah. move on to the halftime report. All right. All right, let's start with some card releases. Tops released their 2021 Tops Chrome Platinum Anniversary Baseball Set. Boxes, hobby boxes, contain 24 packs, four cards per pack. You can expect to pick those up or not expect to. You can pick them up directly on the Tops website for $155 a box. They have a nice kind of retro, basically the 1952 Tops baseball card design. Um, They use that same design, only with chrome. On the finish, and it's a nice, it's a nice, um, a nice set. Uh, Upper Deck released their 2020 to 21 SP Authentic Hockey set. Boxes contain 18 packs, five cards a pack. You can expect a couple autograph cards. The set also includes some patch auto cards. It's a nice set with some nice cards. The Sign of the Times autograph cards are somewhat popular. Boxes are only available online or in hobby shops. They're going to cost about $400 per box. Yeah, Topps also released their 2021-2022 Museum Collection, the UEFA Champions League. So this is soccer or football, depending on your how you look at it. Boxes only have one pack, so it's a pack, eight cards per pack. Collectors can expect to get an autograph card, a relic autograph, so I guess that would be a patch auto, and a relic card and all hits should be numbered. This one's a really nice set with some nice cards if you're into soccer, but it is a little more on the spendy side. Tops was selling these directly on their website for $250, but they sold out very quickly. And now I've looked around before the start of the show, and you can get them for probably around $400, give or take, from hobby shops. Uh, Panini Prism Basketball should be coming out this next week as well. Boxes will have 12 packs and 12 cards per box, or per pack, I guess. Uh, pricing hasn't been officially released yet, but it's looking like they're going to cost about 1300 to 1400 per box. Yeah, and then Tops also uh, partnered up with the artist Lauren Taylor, who's no stranger to baseball cards and Tops, uh, to issue what's called a Tops X collaboration set. Um, she, Lauren Taylor, for those that, that don't know, 
She's been producing licensed baseball art for quite a while. She was among one of the artists that um, created cards for the Topps Project 2020 set. I actually got a bunch of those. I think I got every one of the ones that she produced in that. Uh, she does some really good good artwork on the cards. So now there's a set that's all her own called the Topps X Lauren Taylor Collection. It debuted this past Tuesday with single packs and boxes being sold online directly on the Topps website, although the first wave is already sold out. There's going to be 20 new cards released each week, so these are going to come in waves. Packs hold five cards and one parallel or insert card. The checklist is a mix of rookies and stars and former greats and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's also going to be some uh, some autograph cards in there uh, priced at $20 a pack, or you can get boxes for $95, like I said, via the Topps website, which also has the checklist and all the details on it. But again, these sell out. They come in waves each week. They sell out pretty quick, so if you want one, you're going to have to kind of pay attention and, and, uh, and buy it as soon as they come out. All right, uh, PSA has eliminated the year restrictions on cards for their value service. Remember, they opened the service with a 20-card minimum and then removed it a week later, but only cards from 96 to current could be submitted. Now they've removed that 1996 to current restriction so that their value service is effectively open for everything with no restriction. Yeah, so this is what I was going to touch on because they've now just opened this up. What this tells me, look, I mean, read between the lines. Maybe we're just making this up and it's all conjecture, but I just have to believe they don't make these changes this fast where they, you know, open up the value service with all these restrictions and a week later remove one of the restrictions and another, you know, week or two later remove the rest of the restrictions. So now there's no restrictions. That tells me they're not getting as many submissions, which doesn't surprise me, frankly, uh, as maybe they were expecting. And obviously, with all the hiring they've done, they're going to need to get some volume to keep those graders busy once they clear the backlog. So what I think is interesting here is over the next three to six months, pay attention to this. It's I, I have a strong suspicion that grading volumes are going to be down. And with all the capacity these companies have had, they're going to have to do one of two things, right? They're either going to have to reduce that capacity or they're going to have to lower price points or do some different incentive type, you know, campaigns in order to get the orders in. And so I, anyway, so if you're looking to grade stuff and you're not, it's not time sensitive, you don't care. I might sit on it for a while, uh, for a few more months and kind of see what happens with this. Cause I'd suspect we're going to see some lower pricing over the next few months, but who knows? I could be wrong. All right, uh, USC and UCLA made it official by announcing they're going to move conferences. Uh, excuse me. Starting with the 2024 season, they're going to be switching from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten. So Oregon is going to probably win the Pac-12 championship in basketball every year. Um, I would imagine now. But football, basketball should be football, right? I've, I mean, yeah, but these two are great basketball schools too. Yeah, although I'm sure there's several other school, Arizona and several other schools are going to have Arizona's something to in the say Pac-12? about that. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Okay, never mind. Yeah. We'll say football then. <laughs> I forgot Arizona. Well, and then the there's Pac-12. still going to be other school Washington. There's going to be other schools that are going to have. Yeah, some but like those, that. I those three. But were I ones agree. That I would. Well, I don't. I, and Arizona. Here's, I forgot about that. Yeah, I don't. Honestly, I don't like this move. I just really don't. This is one of those. I just. I, I don't know why. I, I do know why they're doing it. But I, and here's the other thing: Can you even call it the Big Ten anymore? I mean, there's going to be 16 teams in that conference, and it's called the Big Ten, and. USC and UCLA are going to be the only two on the West Coast. Typically, these conferences are organized by kind of geographic region. Now you're getting kind of more mixing and matching. I don't know. I just, I'm not a fan. I think ultimately it's going to have a negative impact on fan participation. I just think the 
the rivalries from the West Coast schools, you know, between, like you said, with Oregon and UCLA and USC or with Arizona or with Washington or what have you. And Oregon and the Giants at Oregon and USC. I mean, I just think, but you get this West Coast rivalry that you're not going to have anymore. Now it's going to be USC and UCLA basically against the Midwest, you know, teams from Ohio and Indiana and Wisconsin and Illinois and whatnot, because that's the Big Ten has historically been the mid the Midwest. It just it just feels weird. I don't like it. I I, I think you're going to lose something from a fan's perspective by doing this. They're chasing the money, and sometimes I would just say I don't think money should always be the the main factor, but whatever. Um, anyway, that's again my opinion. I don't like it, but it is what it is. All right, so moving on to the next thing. Four finalists have been named in a contest that was searching for, quote-unquote, America's best sports card shop, or card shop, we should say. And obviously, it's all subjective, but a few months ago, Loop, Tops, Blowout Cards, All Sports Marketing, and PSA launched a contest that offered a cash prize and other perks to the card shop that would win. And the determining factor wasn't just about who had the most cards, but instead, it was kind of all about the environment of their shop and how they participate in their communities and help educate people to the in the hobby and all that kind of stuff they said they had over 1400 submissions uh, that were entered before a panel of judges reviewed all of those and selected four finalists and so here they are your four finalists are the baseball card connection which is in effingham illinois and then you have the card vault in Foxborough, Massachusetts. I believe that one is right across the street. Yeah, it is. We have in the notes right across the street from Gillette Stadium. I've heard about that shop, and I think uh, it's supposed to be a really nice, neat shop to go to. Honey Hole Collectibles in Escondido, California. And then Real Sports Cards in, Ch- I don't know how you pronounce that, Champlin or Champlin, Minnesota. If someone out there is from Minnesota, let us know how you pronounce that. Uh, but those are your four finalists. The grand prize package is approximately $50,000 including $25,000 for store improvements and then a bunch of other stuff, some gift cards like Best Buy and some other types of things. So um, collectors are invited to vote, and the winner is going to be announced at the National coming up later this summer in just about a month. All right. Uh, PWCC says it now has over 500,000 assets stored inside its Oregon vault with a total assessed value of over $1 billion. Uh, the company first announced the vault in 2018, a new concept at the time, but since then, the practice of vaulting assets has been widely adopted. They say that it's reducing, uh, they are reducing their threshold for an item to qualify as a free vault submission through the end of July from $250 per item to $50 per item. Yeah, so that's, I guess, they're running a promotion to normally, if it was the based on the value of the card, it would determine if you get a free submission or not. So they're, they're dropping that to do a promotion. But anyway, so we've got some, st- I've got some stuff with, with them. So nice to see that. Uh, in other news, Beckett Collectibles is jumping into the VHS collectibles market. You know what a VHS tape is? Yeah. Dude, come on. <laughs> Seriously? All right. Well, I, you know. Uh, we had VHS tapes when I was a kid. Yeah, we did. I know. And so, yeah, Beckett's getting into that business. They've hired a gentleman by the name of Cole Hitt, who apparently is one of the foremost authorities in the VHS market and uh, on grading and certification. He's the founder of a company called VHS DNA. Beckett plans to integrate VHS DNA suite of services into their offering. And uh, VHS DNA basically provides grading and authentication for VHS tapes, and they encapsulate them 
and whatever. So anyway, so apparently you can do VHS tapes just like you can do sports cards. Um, they become all latest craze. Get this, a copy of Star Wars that was graded a 9.6 mint. I don't know what would determine how you kind of what the grade is, but anyway, maybe it's the cover that it's in. But Star Wars 1 graded 9.6 sold in December for $57,000 at Golden Auctions. That was topped earlier this month with a sealed near mint copy of Back to the Future, which sold for a record $75,000 at Heritage Auctions. So now everyone needs to go into your cabinet and pull out all your VHS tapes to That's see what you in got. Probably bad shape though. For yeah. Most people. Yeah. Um, if pre-sale tickets are any indication, this year's National Card Show could be one of the largest ever. According to NSCC Executive Director, as of mid-June, ticket sales at all levels, VIP to general admission, were double the amount at that same point last year. Yeah, the nat- that just stands for what? The National Sports Card Collector? I forget what that stands for. Something The NSCC. But anyway, it's the National Card Show that's coming up in Atlantic City in 2021. They said it was the uh, second highest mark. That was the year it was in Chicago. Um, I think it approached. I thought it was a hundred thousand. They said in the article that they thought it approached ninety thousand. The largest one is supposedly from 1991 in Anaheim, California, where they grew drew a crowd uh, of around a hundred thousand. See, I thought the Chicago National met that, or maybe even eclipsed it, but. According to this article, maybe not the case. Maybe Chicago was second and that 1991 convention was first. But nonetheless, this year's show sounds like it might be um, giving those records a run for the money. Uh, The show's going to be July 27th to 31st in Atlantic City at the Atlantic City Convention Center. All right. Oh, and get this. Here's an interesting stat. Of the people who purchased tickets prior to uh, mid-June, 50% of them indicated on a pre-show survey that it was going to be their first time attending the national. So that's cool to see. So half the people there will be the first time they've been there. I think that's really neat. And a few tips if it is your first time. One, wear comfortable shoes. You will do a lot of walking and a lot of standing. It is a I've never been to the Atlantic Convention Center, but I had Atlantic City, but I was at the Chicago one last year. They're huge and you're going to be covering a lot of real estate and so wear some comfortable shoes. Many will tell you to go with a plan of what you want to go get. I would tell you that plan can include and probably should include taking a day to kind of orient yourself, maybe going around, walking the floor, visiting a number of booths just to kind of familiarize yourself with everything because it can be a little overwhelming at first. And if you just kind of go into one particular, you know, focus in on one thing, you may miss a lot that might be going on the show. So I always recommend just kind of right when you first get in maybe just orient yourself walk the floor kind of familiarize yourself glance you know kind of look at what everyone's got and offering but if you do have some things that you'd like to buy and you find them and they are at a price that you're willing to pay i would tell you do it buy them when when you first see them because if you look at them and leave and then come back later there's a good chance they're going to be gone i'll tell you that's happened to me a number of times not just at the national but other card shows where i see something i think well i'll come back and then i go look around or maybe come back a half hour hour two hours later whatever and the card's gone someone else bought it so if you want something and it's at a good price then i would go ahead and get it all right let's move on maybe touch on a few card ladder record sales uh, we'll just touch on a couple of these. So there was, uh, we said we mentioned last week, there was a 1934 Gaudi Lou Gehrig. I think that was a PSA 2. This time it was a PSA 4 that sold for a record $7,500 via Heritage Auctions. And then here's one that's um, 
relevant to the Stanley Cup Finals. The 1989 Topps Joe Sackick base card. It was a PSA 10. He is the, uh, uh, I think he's the general manager, right? Is that his title, general manager for the Colorado Avalanche? Anyway, not sure his official title, but he's he's the, the guy that put the Colorado Avalanche together, put that team together, and they just won the Stanley Cup Finals. But that card in a PSA 10 sold for record $2,861 couple other ones relevant to some things we're going to talk about today. A 2015 Excalibur Kaboom card for Carl Anthony Towns. It was raw, was not graded, sold for a record $725. And then what else? Uh, how about this one? A 1977 Star Wars C-3PO. I think we've talked about this one before. It's an air card. Anthony Daniels is on it. It's got kind of one of C-3PO's pieces of his suit or whatever that's kind of sticking out. And a PSA 6.5 that sold for $230. Uh, pick a couple cards here that people might have in their collections. An 83 Tops Joe Montana in a PSA 10 sold for $1,450. Or an 83 Tops Nolan Ryan in a PSA 10 sold for $600. And I'll do one more. A 1966 Philadelphia, that's kind of a cool set. Gail Sayers, running back, in a PSA 8.5 sold for $6,900. So. Some right. record card sales from Card Ladder. All right. Well, I think that does it for the halftime report. Let's go ahead and let's go to the interview that we're going to do with uh, Chris McGill. All right. We'll we'll go we'll cut to that and then we'll come back and cover the rest of the stuff we got. All right. So we are joined today by Chris McGill, co-founder of Card Ladder. Has been on our podcast before. I guess in in addition to co-founder of Card Ladder moderator, founder of many crossover and many other podcasts and other hobby content and whatnot. So Chris, thanks for coming on the show or coming back, I should say, to the show. Doug, thank you and Brandon so much for having me back. Just was telling you guys before we recorded, I'm a huge fan of the content that you guys do. I think it's incredibly thoughtful and detailed. And uh, also, um, I hope we get a chance to talk about Steph Curry today because I was just reminded of like a comment that one of you guys left me about Curry. And I've been thinking a lot about Steph Curry's legacy too uh, after the fourth win. So maybe we can talk Curry as well. I just want to drop that in there, even though I know we're live, but thanks so much for having me back guys. No, that's great. That, yeah. We'll have to do yeah, that. I won't go off on too much it. of a tangent, but yeah, I was telling Brandon, I was like, I was like, I think Chris is throwing a little shade on Curry. So we might need to. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, but you know, let's talk about it if we get a minute. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, I know what prompted the, to have you on for this conversation was just some of the the um, analysis and some of the things that we had done on the indexes that Card Ladder produces. And yeah. so, first of all, I'll say I'll repeat what I said on our last podcast, which is the, the the analysis we did, the research, the comments we made, the social media posts we've done is you know it wouldn't be possible without Card Ladder, without the data that you all produce. And, and the transparency that that provides to people in the hobby. It's, and so anyone that took our, you know, post or, or research or whatever mm -hmm. is in any way throwing shade on, on car ladder, that was absolutely not the case. It was actually just the opposite to, you know, from my perspective, car ladder is the go-to for hobby research and data analytics and that type of thing. And, and so anyway, so Chris, I appreciate all that you and the whole team at card ladder are doing uh, for, for the hobby to make that data available, because that's going to be one of the things, in my opinion, that helps to um, to grow the space and educate uh, hot, you know, 
collectors and investors alike. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, you know, there's uh, there's levels to or different segments to a product like Card Ladder. One of them, and by far the most important, is getting as close as possible to a clean data set that, you know, puts the right sales of the right cards into the right sales histories, which is harder than it sounds because of the way that people title things and the way that people capture things with pictures. It really needs to be vetted by a human being. And I spent a lot of my time doing that. So that's, that's one level of the product is trying to create a really clean data set that is hopefully capturing, you know, sales that are not shilled and that are likely consummated transactions. So that's like, that's one of the big focal points. But then the other layer to the product is like, what do you do with the data? You know, how do you organize it? Do you put it into indexes? Do you build collections? Do you, you know, rank cards based on their performance, based on their population reports and stuff? And like, we have ideas about that. And like, we do it in in ways that, that, you know, hopefully speaks to what card letter users want to see. But we have a new feature rolling out. And it should be out by the time this podcast releases. And if it's not, then, you know, it'll be out very soon thereafter, where we're going to empower card ladder users to make their own indexes, which I'm very excited about. So users will be able to specify which cards they want, or, or, you know, you'll actually be able to do it in a different way and just set parameters like, oh, I only want 1970s PSA 10 baseball or something. And like, you can make an index of only that. So that, that, and then that's where I love what you guys did. And that's why, you know, I messaged you guys after I saw some of the stories and I was like, well, this is, this really was provocative. And I thought this was a really interesting take about, you know, you guys are taking information and packaging it and applying it and analyzing it in ways that just, just frankly, we're not. And that's cool. And that's good. And, and, and the fact that there's people out there digging in and analyzing the data uh, in, their own ways, bring their own expertise to it is, is the level of card ladder that just we can't do unless there's thoughtful content creators and creative people out there like you guys who are, who are, you know, effectively collaborating with us to do it. We make the data set, but then you take it and, and produce, you know, studies for lack of a better word that, that just show things that only you guys are seeing and make it available to others. So I, I appreciate those kind words. Yeah. Well, the, I, that's fantastic. I think the, um, the ability, like you just said, of, to kind of create our own custom or the user to create their own custom indexes. That's huge. I think that'll open up. I know all we'll be going in there and creating a bunch <laughs> of things and it's going to open up all kinds of possibilities for, and you know, for people that are in this, what, if you're just in it for collecting, if you're in it for investing, what what have you? I mean, maybe for the collector, it's just interesting information. For the investor, I think it's it's uh, you know almost required information, and it's and it really is going to help people kind of understand the market. And that's what prompted us. So when we were first looking at the card ladder, so a couple of things prompted a lot of the work we did. One is when you're looking at the card ladder 50 index, you know at the time. Now it's it's down a little more now, uh, but at the time it was you know down roughly four percent on a year one year basis. And, you know, we're hearing comments from folks about, well, you know, gosh, the, the market feels like it's down a lot more. It doesn't it doesn't really represent, you know, what's happening. And so decided to kind of dig into it and and figure out, is that the case or not? And, you know, sure enough, I mean, when you and this is what's interesting about it, you dig into it, like you said, there's all kinds of some interesting trends happening, 
underneath the surface, which I think in some ways, some of them are not necessarily, you know, earth shattering, right? They're intuitive. They're what you'd expect, right? That oh, the ultra modern high pop count cards are doing worse than the, you know, low pop count vintage cards. I mean, that kind of everyone just intuitively knows that, but it is, I think it's cool and, and, and nice that the data confirms that the data validates that. So it's not just, you know, people's sort of subjective thoughts and opinions. They think this is what's happening, but you can actually go into the data that card ladder provides and validate, is this true or not? You know? And so that was one of the things that prompted us. And when we dug into it, yeah, found all kinds of different interesting trends about which sports, you know, made up different performance within the index, which eras of cards, which the, the pop counts on cards, the values of cards, you know, the higher value versus the lower value. And so all that became, in my opinion, becomes very useful information, I think, for investors. And I think that was one of the things that we were trying to accomplish is just to help people understand how to interpret some of these indexes and what they're telling you. Um, and one of the things we were thinking about with the Card Ladder 50 index is that because it's a price weighted index, which, by the way, we said before, and so I'll just say again, that's does that doesn't make it a like that's not a um, what's the word I'm looking for? There, there's nothing wrong with a price weighted index, right? The Dow Jones Industrial Average is a price weighted index. Mm-hmm. So, but knowing that it's price weighted, you know, kind of helps you understand what might be driving. The performance and so then when you kind of look under the under the hood you can get you know glean kind of some more information about some of the trends that are happening and that's where i think a lot of the other indexes i've seen that you guys are creating you know you've got your low pop your high pop count your you know <laughs> high end mid low end and stuff all these different indexes, the different sport indexes all of that stuff if you couple all that with the card ladder 50 it really begins to tell a nice story and then the fact that you can change the time you know what is it done one month three months a year three years um that i just it's it's a it's a fantastic tool for anyone that wants to do that analysis or that wants to be involved from more of an investor's perspective in the hobby i mean to me this is this is exactly what's needed to do that yeah this is such a great conversation here because in like a traditional market, traditional financial market, like the stock market, indexes exist that you could buy into. So the performance of the index is meaningful in a practical on the ground way. You know, if you, if you like the S&P 500, you can get a piece of that action at any level you want. And with any card index, you know, but especially like one like the CL50, which you know, I, I guess like on a day like today, you know, because the value fluctuates a little bit, but, you know, there's 50 cards. It is price weighted. So you just you take what the current value is, which is about 16,000. I just OK, so what's 16,000 times 50 about what 800? Yeah, 800. So the value of the index is 800 grand. So if you if you wanted a piece of this index, you know, you have to put up 800 grand. There's really and you have to go through the frictions. Of acquiring the cards and then yeah. you have to deal with the fact that like for example one of the cards in there is a bgs 95 which is a curry tops chrome rookie not all bgs 95s are the same some have good subs some have poor subs you know psa 9 jordan fleer is another card that's in there that's on the higher end you know so there's just it's not a practical index that is investable and so that's why you know if the question is are the indexes teaching us about ways that we can invest in sports cards. No, I, I just don't think they are. I, I think they're, I don't, I just don't think they are, you know, but, but what I do think that the indexes do 
is they tell the story in a longer term time horizon about how sports cards in the aggregates have appreciated in terms of price. It, yeah. it, it doesn't just because this like like you can look at the S&P 500, which is with dividend reinvestment is up a little bit less than 5x compared to the year 2004. And you can say, you know, if somebody just kept sinking money into an S&P 500 index fund, they literally these are the actual results that they would have. Whereas with the card letter 50, you know, it, it just nobody can sink money into it. And right. and that's not how people collect. You know, people don't say, well, I want an OPG Gretzky and I want a Fleer Jordan and I want 86 tops traded Barry Bonds. You know, that's not how we collect. You know, I, I like Jordan, Michael Jordan. So I just I collect him or I like the you know, I like the Chicago Bulls. So I I collect those guys. And, you know, that's just that these are these are some of the really important shortcomings are, you know, dependent upon the question. It's, it's all about the framing. What's the question being asked? If the question being asked is, you know, are sports card indexes investable? It's just, they're just not. So, but, but, and, and, and that's important, right? Because, you know, it makes it difficult to say, you know, here's how sports cards have performed as an investment relative to some other thing. But here's where I I think that the indexes maybe get a little bit of short shrift and this is, and this is where I want to speak up for them is that the indexes do tell in the aggregate, the price appreciation that sports cards across different silos of the industry when averaged have realized over the last 18 years. And so, you know, I got a lot of pushback um, when I was doing comparisons of, S&P 500's 18-year appreciation rate, which, like I said, with dividend investment is about 5x or about 300. It's, it's like 385%. And then the card ladder 50, which is normalized to start at 1,000 in 2004, and the current value is 16,000. So that's just a, a, a nice, clean 16x or 1,500%. Yeah. So, you know, it, is this like when you when 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 people are making investment decisions, they're thinking about what's the risk, you know? And, and you would look at an index like the CL50 and say, what's the standard deviation in percentage change over the 18-year period? And if you looked at that, you're going to see that there were, you know, periods from 04 to, you know, 2016, where at the at the high end, it went up about 30%. At the low end, it was flat. And then all of a sudden, you get to 2019, 2020, 2021, and you see these jumps of, you know, 80%, 150%. And then you get to 2021 to 2022, and all of a sudden now, you know, looking at year over year on the CL50, it's down 15%. You know, so there's lots of volatility. There are lots of red flags that would make people really identify this as a risky, you know, investment if it was being put that way. So if, you know, if the question is how investable is it, you know, there's, it, that's, that's, a, that's a question that indexes just don't answer for, for, for all the reasons that have just been laid out. But if the question is, can we can we tell the story of something bizarre and phenomenal and and you know driven by the enthusiasm for sports driven by nostalgia driven by you know this this strange industry this niche industry having this explosion of interest especially over the last half decade or so can we tell that story in a compelling fashion and use other benchmarks to tell it and i think like if we limit the question to that if we limit the question to saying you know, can can we compare and tell the story of sports cards and how can we do it? 
that's where I do think that the CL50 can be compared yeah. to an S&P 500 or to a Dow Jones Industrial Average, even acknowledging methodological differences, price weighted versus not price weighted. And like we can get into the weeds of that stuff too. So, okay, let me pause there. No, so that there's a ton there. Then, yeah. so, as I'm thinking through, so a couple things. One is, yeah, we were one of I was one of the ones that probably challenged the notion of you know comparing the card ladder 50 to the S&P 500. And I think now that said, I won't, I don't disagree with anything you just said. I do think that the card ladder 50 index is a nice representation of the market as a whole. Is it going to get, you know, is that going to be every investor's or the, the, the average investor's experience? No, probably not. But if you want to think about just collectively the, you know, how the market has done, how this as an asset class is done, I think it's a good representation and a good estimate estimation of that. And so if you want to use that to compare, you know, to the S&P 500 or, so, or some other, you know, index for some other asset class, I think that's fair. Now, can you say, you know, the S&P 500, and I was just looking at some of the stats on that. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know, it's, it's down, you know, over the last few, this year, last six months, but nonetheless, it's a 35 trillion market cap, give or take. Our economy is a 20, what, $5 trillion. So the S&P roughly represents the size of our economy. And so it's a good estimation of what's happening in the market as a whole. So does that's where I was going is does the card or 50 index represent the uh, good, the market, the sort of what your boots on the ground collectors and investors are experiencing? Yeah. No, I don't think it does. Now, does that mean it's a bad index? Absolutely not. Does that mean you can't glean some good information out of it? Absolutely not. You just need to know what you're looking at and how to interpret it. And then because, the, look, I think the reason one of the things is you're talking about the indexes. There's a couple things I want to go to there. But one is if we talk about why would we track indexes? I mean, in if let's we've got collectors, we've got investors. Not everyone is one or the other. Right. You can do both. I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people are probably like us. They've got a core collection that don't care about the financial value of one way or the other. I mean, you know, how you know, like to see it go up, but it doesn't matter if it goes up or down. And then maybe around that, there's a fringe part of the collection that wants to do some investing aspect of it because it's fun and you get sure. to do it with things that you enjoy and, you know, and sport and, and, a, and, a, and a, you know, industry that's fun. And, and so it's kind of, it's kind of cool. There's, I think there's just a, a cool factor to that that makes it really enjoyable. And so the index is, in my mind, help you do that, right? Because they help you. Now, right now, they're not investable. I want to come back to that. But what they do is they kind of tell you where the trends are. They tell you where collectors' preferences are. And so you can begin to glean what's happening, whether it's by sport, whether it's by values of card, whether it's by player, whether it's by team, whether it's by era of the card, all the you know, sets, manufacturers, there's a wide variety of ways that you can look at that. But if you really you know, want to dig into all that, then yeah, you can kind of start to see the trends and the preferences. And there's, I think there's a way to capitalize on that. Now, the investable part of that, I want to ask you about it because that was one thing we posted in our story. I actually think there's a great opportunity here. And I know that logist realistically, this might be difficult to do for a variety of reasons, but I also think there's a way to get it done. And mm -hmm. that is on the fractional platforms. And I know that that probably for a lot of people stirs up some emotion because some people don't like the fractional platforms. Other people do. So, look, if you're not in fractional platforms, fine. You can, you know, this this conversation may not be for you. But 
But what I would, what I think would be cool is for the card ladder 50 to be an investable index. Cause I actually do look at that index and I think these are all like in some ways kind of the most iconic, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you wouldn't say grail, but you would certainly say iconic for some people. They're the grail cards, but they're all the iconic cards. If you had every one of those 50 cards in your collection, how cool would that be in my opinion? Uh, but, and so to me, I think it would be awesome to be able to go on to a fractional platform, whether it's collectible or any of the others and be able to buy the card ladder 50 index. Now I realize there's some challenge with that, right? Cause the index itself has maybe a half a million dollar value. And so some of those cards are, you know, lower pop counts cause you'd have to go out and acquire each one of the cards. And then if you did that, just one card of each, I think it's about a half a million dollar market value. So that's all that people could invest. So, then you'd have to, well, if you did 10 cards, could you get 10 cards of each of them? You'd probably move the market if you, but, and then, you know, now you've got a $5 million security that could be invested in. There's probably other ways though, like maybe using different grades or maybe substituting a card that has a little higher pop count that would still get you the same concept. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that's something that you all have thought about before or talked to collectible about, and it doesn't have to be the 50. I would love to see that with other indexes, like create, like, and you look, probably can't get, you could go crazy with it and there wouldn't be enough demand, but maybe there's a core, you know, baseball, basketball, vintage, modern, and then card ladder 50, you know, the, 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 the main sports, right. And then maybe the, the, the industry as a whole, and then maybe the era of cards or something, and then try to create a 20 to 50 card index that could be fractionalized and people could actually invest on those platforms. Yeah, I love it. And, uh, you know, there have been attempts at this, not in collaboration with us, but I know that platforms, um, fractional platforms have tried to, you know, bundle cards, create um, baskets of cards, and they and they never really seem to work out that well. Yeah. I think one of the reasons why is because uh, you know these fractional platforms were emerging at a time when the market was you know absolutely peaking. So like using the card ladder fifty to kind of like tell the aggregate story of the hobby. You know the card ladder fifty today is worth sixteen thousand, but in March of twenty twenty one it was worth thirty three thousand. <laughs> so yeah. the 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 you know uh, to those uh, you know collectors who say is this representing it well it. It literally, it got cut in half. I, I yeah. do think there are a lot of people out there who over the last year and four months or whatever can relate to having their collection value from its peak cut in half. And it, so, but the reason why I bring up that 33,000 is that that was when fractional companies were doing a lot of buying <laughs> and they were yeah. picking up a lot of cards that they were putting into baskets and, you know, then the market corrected. And so, but, you know, if, if I was looking to invest in an index. Uh, I would want to invest in an index that was loaded with, you know, National Treasures, Logo Man, one of ones, and Prism Black, one of ones, and Optical Vinyls, and, you know, Topps Chrome Superfractors, and PMG Greens, and stuff like that. I mean, Prism Golds, like, I'd want to load up on an index that had car, and, and that's the irony of it, though, and the difficulty of it, is it I would want to load up on an index that has cards that never sell. Yeah, and that you know, so, and so you're actually not going to know how your index is performing day to day, and that's tough or week to week, and that's frustrating. But in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, and it, and it very well could be wrong. I'm I'm wrong all the time, but I think that the cards that hold the best prospects of doing well 
at least holding value. If not, you know, if, you know, there's lots of factors that impact the growth and value of cards, but I think the ones that embrace that, the, the ones that embrace the factors that tend to increase the price of cards are the cards that are the rarest of, you know, the most desired players from the most prestigious brands and the best and the best legacy brands. So like, you know, if, if my dream of all dream indexes, it has the 1952 tops mantle PSA 10 and it has the 2003 ultimate collection, uh, logo man autograph rookie card, LeBron, and it has, which is a one of one and it has, you know, the, uh, the Mike Trout super fractor from his rookie year. And it has the Luca prism black one of one, which nobody's ever seen. And it has the 2009 Steph Curry national treasures, logo man autograph one of one, which actually is in a fund. It's in a fund that alt owns. Yeah. So like that, that's my, if I was going to say, well, I don't get to own cards, but I can, the next best thing is putting money into an index, you know, that's the type of index that I would go after. And that's, and that, and so that's just my final point here is that like, that's why like, I, I wouldn't invest in the CL 50, you know, yeah. like yeah. We've, we've had some accusations of like, Hey, you know, the CL 50, I mean, isn't this biased, you know, didn't, didn't you guys just pick the cards that are going to perform the best? No, <laughs> absolutely unequivocally. No, uh, we, you know, I, you know, the CL 50 has experienced a 15 X, growth or i'm sorry a 16x growth since its origin date which is on 2004 and we composed this index in uh february of 2021 so like there is the risk of look ahead bias there there are concerns of bias there but we we tried to compose the index in a way that just represents the cards that have been iconic cards that are higher pop cards that are visible cards that are low-hanging fruit and obvious but if we wanted to you know, if we wanted to cherry pick, here's who I would cherry pick with. I would say, oh, if I want to cherry pick and show how great cards are doing, I'm going to show you the Stephen Curry index because Stephen Curry cards from the first sale of his first card, which was in September of 2009 until today, have increased. You know, his index is worth 1.6 million. His index has increased 163. I don't even. I don't even know how to calculate the number in my head. His index is is started at a thousand and it's worth one point six million today. That that's if I wanted to say you know, hey look sports cards you know blah blah yeah. blah, I I would show that. But instead, that would have been we're a showing, nice index to be in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and look, and that's part of the story of sports cards and like the concept of the average collector is a is a difficult one because I just don't think there is one. You know, I collect Luca Jordan. And guys like that. And then somebody else collects Kobe and LeBron and somebody else collects Trout and Mantle. And then somebody else is dabbling in prospects like Daniel Jones and Trevor Lawrence. And, you know, somebody else is collecting Yadier Molina and, you know, and, and uh, Anthony Rizzo and, you know, people. And then somebody else is collecting Newt Rockney and, you know, old school vintage. And there's just, there's, there is no average experience. There's people are going to have very different ones. And that doesn't mean that like collectors don't have the right to say, Hey, this index isn't telling my hobby story because they do have the right to say that. And that's kind of the point is that there isn't a hobby story. You know, every, every story is so individualized. It's so different that, you know, the idea that, you know, uh, that an index would capture um, the average collector's experience, like it just won't, you know, it, it won't because 
I collect, you know, Jordan and Luca. So the CL50 has one Jordan card and one Luca card. So, you know, 4% of that index speaks to me. And there's going to be lots and lots of people who don't even collect any players who are in that index. So it's a, that's a good point. That's actually not, you know, I hadn't really thought about it like that before, but it's a very good point. I mean, is there an average collector's experience? It's that, and that's where I think, that's why I think there's such a difference between something like the, you know, the financial markets and the indexes of those compared to this, because there isn't that's to your point. All right. Now we can get to, and that's what we try to do is like, okay, what are the, we, we use the term most widely owned. Maybe that's not the right term. Just the, the highest, you know, the, the most graded is maybe the way we should, you know, view it. These are the most graded cards, the higher pop count cards. So therefore, there's more of these than anything else out there and more likely that people, you know, more people that are going to own these than anything else. And so trying to look at those and say, okay, this is maybe a little, little closer to what the average collector's experience is. But to your point, I mean, is there such a thing? I don't know. And, and if there was, you know, what's the purpose of trying to measure? I mean, for me, that's why I kind of get to the, the indexes serve two purposes in my book. One is, if, if they were investable, that would be one a way for me to invest and participate in that market and, and in a, in a broad way, you know, um, in, in, in whatever that index represents as it relates to the market. This, the second thing that the indexes do, and I think about it more from a finance, I mean, I think it really is right. I'd like to hear the perspective from a collector, whether they care, because I, 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 I'm trying to think of it from that perspective, but I can't, you know, if you really don't care about the financial value of the card, then I don't know, or any cards, then I don't know that the indexes probably matter to you. But from an investor's perspective, the index is, I don't, a card doesn't generate income, right? A card doesn't generate earnings that I can say, okay, and now I can, you know, forecast what I think the trend, you know, there's a tech company that's in some new space and I'm going to try to forecast, forecast the growth and how much of the market they can capture and what their margins are going to be and discount that back and, you know, get a fair market value. You can't do that with cards, but what, and so if any collectible, um, but for as long as I can think of collectibles have been in high demand and have done well, you know, from an investment and financial perspective. And so why is that? Well, a lot of it just comes down to preference and and what are people wanting to put their money in and buy? And obviously there's, you know, whether it's nostalgia, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of things that factor into that. But that to me is the story that indexes tell is that they tell, okay, what are collectors and investors doing with them? Where are their preferences going? And 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 how and so then if you did want to invest and try to you know make some money from that perspective then i think you have to really pay attention to what's happening in the indexes and analyze them to try to get in front of some of those you know see when the trends turning and get in front of those and then also understand cuz look i mean if if you if you got into the hobby in march of 2021 and you're like man these prices I bet you money. I, you know, some people might've just jumped in and been like, whatever, but, but I bet you, if you would have before investing in anything or collecting anything at that point, if you just would have looked at an index and saw that, like you said, that Steph Curry or whatever, that see it go parabolic and yeah. straight up, you probably would have looked at it and said, you know, 
this maybe is a little this weird. isn't the best time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Maybe it, I'll let that cool off a little bit. But see that there right there. That could have been useful if you were looking at that and said, Yeah, I think I'm gonna let that come down a little bit before I jump yeah. in. Oh anyway, yeah. So you nailed it. I I love every I I'm in complete completely on the same page with everything you just said. I love the way you summed it up too, is like indexes are an interesting way to for you know measuring consumer preferences or investor preferences. Okay, so uh, I thought that was a great discussion. And I think we, we could go on for probably hours, but like I'd love we to could. pause it there and just say yeah. that that was awesome. I love doing that. What so about you? You don't have a lot of time left. Do you yeah. want to go Curry or do you want to go NBA uh, free agency? Curry. I'd like to go Curry because you know what? More stuff's going to happen free agency before this comes out. So yeah. I'd like to, you know, maybe this then it's then it's dated a little bit. So let's talk. So, so let me let me set the stage. I'll let because I want to let Brandon. Brandon, you need to get in on this conversation because well, you're the. So here's the. Did he say he changed his mind? So well, this. I don't know. So let's see. So here's the stage. So Brandon would argue that Curry is one of the goats. I, I I'd say, actually tend I would, to agree with him. I would say top ten. Yeah. So down. Brandon would say top ten. I think you probably. If, you dis, if someone disagreed, I would. You know, I wouldn't like disagree with them, but I would put him in the top ten. Yeah. And so, and I think Chris. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you would probably say, nah, Curry's overrated. So let's well, let the two of you have that conversation. Well, I thought that <laughs> I, need Here, to, I need more context. Yeah. Let, let's tie cards into this, all right? This is uh, 2017 uh, Steph Curry Prism Black Disco, one of one, all right? It's the, it's the only year that Prism did uh, black one of ones in their Fast Break or their Disco product. So it's neat, you know, in that respect. Um, it's one of just a, a, a small handful of prism blacks of Steph Curry. Admittedly, it's not as desirable as the true black one of one. It's like, it's it's the disco. It's not the true. But still, I picked that card up when the Warriors were down 2-1 in the NBA Finals. And I just saw enough to say I need a really cool Steph Curry card. And that card came available. And I, and I went and I got it. So I'm a believer in Steph, and I think he's awesome, and I think he is the face of a of a 10 year period of the NBA. And he has six finals appearances in eight years, and his numbers in the finals are on par with the very best players of all time. Um, but I think that there's one interesting wrinkle to Curry's legacy that he still has time to you know iron out but that lingers over it if we want to put him into the lebron and michael jordan category which i think he can get to i think he can get there but and that wrinkle is the finals mvps and like i know everybody hates this right like zach lowe immediately after the finals was like finals mvps are so overrated can we stop talking about these i'm like no we can't no we can't because here's why i mean i disagree that they're overrated i mean they're, if, if you're the finals you, MVP, you are the best player in the entire league at that point in time. So, like, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I think they matter, too. I, and sometimes they're wrong. So, like, the Andre Iguodala finals MVP, when we look back, I think reasonable minds certainly can agree that Curry should have two. But there's two more where when you do stack up, like, Durant's finals numbers against Curry's finals numbers – you know, Durant's finals numbers are astonishing. And granted, that's because he's the beneficiary of a team of selfless players who are letting him operate 
and do what, you know, he would like to do and which is rare, but, you know, for me, for Curry to get, and I, 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 he's in my top 10 too, but for Curry to surpass Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, for Curry to get up there with LeBron and MJ, I need to, I need him to get close, if not match the finals MVP count. And we're going to say he has two. Okay. So I need him to get to like four uh, in order for me to put him in the same breath as, as Jordan and LeBron. And, but I'd like to see that happen, but that that's where I land on Curry is like, you know, when the explosion of content, Hey, is he going to pass LeBron if he gets a fifth title? And I'm just like, well, hold on, <laughs> you know, hold on. And, and LeBron's trajectory could have been very different by the way, as well, because Dwayne Wade was the best player statistically on the heat by far in the 2011 NBA finals that the Mavericks ultimately won. And the Mavericks had a lot of fluky things go their way. Had the Miami Heat won that finals, you know, Dwayne Wade was going to be the finals MVP there. So th- there's a there's a lot of things that could have gone differently, but didn't, right? But so that's that's where I come down is that the finals MVP thing is where I land on Curry. And before I want to see him mentioned with Jordan and LeBron, I'd like to see him, as Brandon said, you know, establish himself as the best player and the best team as many times as those guys did. And even then, I wonder, my question for, I've asked Brandon this, I'll ask you, Chris, as well, is is there a bias towards a smaller player in the NBA? Because you think about LeBron and you think about Jordan and you think about Kobe and you think about just some of the the greats of all time. They're all guys that can jump out of the gym and just highlight real. And Curry's (laughs) not that guy, right? And I mean, even Magic, you know, he was 6'9". And, you know, just could do all kinds of different things. Curry is more just your true. I mean, he's more than just a pure shooter, actually. That's not where I thought you were going with that. Where did you think I was going with that? I thought you were going to say that the big guys get overlooked, like Bill Russell. Well, that could be too. And like Kareem. Yeah. But. Yeah. I don't know. Shaq. Well, Shaq doesn't get overlooked. Some people think Shaq's overrated. Well, Curry might be just the the total opposite of the big man being overlooked. And then mm-hmm. like you have the, the flashy spectacular athleticism that comes with the wings. And then Curry is on the other end, you know, but, but it's the same result. He's but like the thing I, I think the thing I say to that is like, I kind of disagree with the athleticism and highlight real thing because like Steph Curry is a highlight real player, not with his threes, but with his like finishes and his touch and his handle. So like, like he does things that no one else can do as far as his touch goes. So like, and like his highlights have, you know, tons and tons of view, maybe on par views as some of the, you know, Kobe, LeBron and, and Jordan highlights. So well, I don't know that I a hundred percent agree with that, but he definitely can't jump out the about, gym, which is, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things we've talked about with Curry, that's really, you can't measure in stats and there it's a different type of player, right? LeBron, Jordan always had the ball in their hands. Curry doesn't always have to have the ball in his hands. You know, Jordan actually didn't have the ball in his hands that often. Jordan? I'm actually currently, I'm in like the middle of like a deep dive into Jordan's game. One of the seasons he almost averaged 30. He, he averaged his like possession time per game was like three minutes and 40 seconds or something. <laughs> he like barely had, which I think is probably very similar to Curry actually. I think in terms of like the way they both play the game, the, the reasons they're both good are very much the same in terms of being on balance always you know, moving yeah. without the ball officially and just being like really efficient at what they do. Yeah. Um, 
And that's interesting. I, I didn't really realize simple, that. Really, stat, really but simple that's where I was games, going with that is just know? his off ball movement, the way the defenses have to change in in the way they play against, you know, when he's on the court and that type of thing. Yeah, but, well, look, I, I got to watch Curry during this run. I, I was in Denver at Ball Arena for game three of the first round, and Curry was still coming off the bench at that time uh, as he was rehabbing, and uh, he was just spectacular. He was he was spectacular in that game, but uh, you know I had a I had a moment where because I was actually sitting directly next to us was the Jokic family, two rows of Jokic's, so the brother, <laughs> big brother, and, and, stuff. and the, the both brothers were there. I was two feet away, well, two feet, uh, not two feet, two yards or two strides away because it was me and Christina on the aisle, and then across the aisle was one of the Jokic brothers. Nice. And but uh, so but sitting in front of them was Sean Livingston, Mike Dunleavy, and a bunch of executives. And I think come to find out, maybe even the president and one of the team owners. They were wow. all sitting there in front, and I kept saw them walking back and forth. And you know, I was upset because I was rooting for the Nuggets, and to- and there was a Warriors fan in front of me who kept just just going nuts every time the Warriors <laughs> did well. And I was like, this is so annoying. So, <laughs> so uh, at the end of the game, uh, Steph Curry is shooting free throws. The game's over, but like, you know, they're playing a little foul thing back and forth and Curry's at the free throw line. And I just, I couldn't contain myself. I was in total troll mode and I just go, that's Jordan Poole's backup. And I just like yelled that and Sean Livingston and Mike Dunleavy and some of the other executives for the Warriors, they all turn around and look at me and they just, they like cover their mouths and they start laughing. And I, and I just was like, you know what? I think I just guaranteed that the Warriors are not going to beat the Nuggets. I think I just reverse hexed everything and they're going to go on to win the title just because I yelled that. <laughs> and then a little bit after that, Draymond Green starts like roaming the floor and like, pouncing you know or pounding his feet and just like roaring and one of the Jokic brothers stands up and he goes f you mother effer and he just leaves <laughs> oh man yeah so it was quite the experience and uh, I'm, I'm happy to be able to say i watched curry in uh in his first finals MVP season. Well, I feel like we got a different Chris because this, I don't know what you did with the other Chris. That's but... pretty funny. Judge Jordan yeah. Poole's backup. I like that. Yeah, Jordan. That's funny. <laughs> Jordan Poole's backup. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, I mean, look, I all do respect to Craig. Just sometimes, you know, when you listen to 72 hours straight of podcasts, just lavishing praise and making the inevitable historical comparisons, it's like, let me lean the other way and then settle on a happy middle (laughs) so that's kind of where i'm at well look i'm with i think i'm with you in the sense because i think you're a more of a jordan guy than a lebron guy i actually think jordan's the goat i don't i don't know that anyone is ever going to be able to touch maybe i shouldn't say ever but i just think and again that was my area i grew up watching him so but i just yeah jordan to me is the the hands down not even a question i lebron i just and I probably have a bias against LeBron because there's a part of me that thinks LeBron had such a physical advantage with just how, you know, his, I mean, he would just. He did. Yeah. But I'll also say like, you know, they're very different. I think LeBron gets a lot of credit for how smart he is. And I think the best part of his game is in like his physicality or athleticism. It's actually his passing to me. He's a really, really good passer. Not mm-hmm. everybody 
you know, thinks that is his best trait. But if you're going to ask me and if you ask a lot of like the coaches around the league, they would probably say the same thing. So maybe not maybe a little not. bit of a different, a little bit of a different, like, you know, type of game. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. In, in LeBron statistically, you know, he's, he is a, he is the closest thing to Jordan we've ever seen. Um, yeah. You know, whether you're looking at like the box plus minus advanced metrics, or you're looking at player efficiency rating, which, you know, some people are out on. Some people, you know, think it's okay, uh, you know, and then the totals, you know, over because of longevity of his career. I mean, he really has a compelling case um, when you just kind of stack up resumes. And yeah. even though, you know, he's lost more times than he's won in the finals, he has been to 10. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like nine times, basically almost in a row. I mean, that's just yeah. like unheard of. Yeah, he's he's amazing. But look, guys, it, it's time for me to hop off. I yeah, you have me back so much. And I hope we can do it again in the near Absolutely. future. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on. We appreciate having you on. It's been fun. We'll Thanks. hope to see you at the National. Oh, yeah. I'll be there. All right. Take care, Chris. All right. That was a fun interview with Chris. Yes. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Wish we had more time. We could probably spend a couple of hours talking about hobby stuff with Chris. Uh, love him and the work that everyone at Card Ladder is, is doing. All right, so where do we want to go now? We, we covered a little bit of basketball, but we'll just, we can go ahead and jump into film study and talk about all the other things we want to do. Yeah, let's do it. All right, film study. All right, so we've got baseball, NBA free agency, and hockey. Stanley Cup finals we want to cover. Yep. Where do we go first? Let's do baseball first. Baseball first? Mm-hmm. All right, uh, we'll be somewhat quick about this. Just want to touch on a couple of the, you know, how some of the players are doing. So if you look over the last month, some of the hot players include Mike Trout. He's doing well. Obviously, Aaron Judge. Another one, Anthony Rizzo. We've talked about him before. Now, he's only hitting, his batting average is only 221, so that's not great. But he has 21 home runs. Thank you, Yankee Stadium. I think we talked about that at the beginning of the season that he would be one to watch because he's a lefty. Yankee Stadium, typically very favorable for left-handed hitters. And he is hitting 231 at home versus 208 away, 13 home runs at home versus eight away. So he's doing well there. Pete Alonzo, all the kind of suspects we've talked, usual suspects we talked about before. Pete Alonzo, Jordan Alvarez, uh, Vlad Jr. has been doing well. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt's one uh, that's been heating it. Well, not heating up. He's been doing good all year, but he's having putting together a nice season. His rookie cards, by the way, are the same. He's that same um, sets that Bryce Harper is in. So I think he's got a, is it 2011 that he has the Bowman, the first Bowman, I think. And then there's a 2012 um, tops, I think are his rookie cards. Uh, who else is doing well? Kyle, well, some people probably would say Kyle Schwarber. I, I, he is doing well, but really more from a home run standpoint. Um, he's a home run machine, but not really much else uh, than that. He's got a career 235 average over seven seasons. I think he's in his eighth season now. Just in the last week, Julio Rodriguez, a hot prospect for Seattle, has been heating up a little bit, so that was good to see. If you look at the season as a whole, uh, we've talked before about Jose Ramirez. He's right at the top of all the stat leaders in baseball this year. Paul Goldschmidt, Aaron Judge, Rafael Devers, Jordan Alvarez, Pete Alonso, uh, Freddie Freeman, Mike Trout. Trey Turner's putting together a year. And then Bryce Harper, the bad news on Bryce Harper, he's on the IL now, the injured list, not expected back until August. So sorry to see that. That stinks. Uh, obviously, we've talked about Otani before. And then Betts, Mookie Betts, is expected to be back in early July. And Lou Bob, Louis Lewis Robert for the Chicago White Sox. We've got a couple of his cards 
and he's putting together a nice season. Another unfortunate injury news, Jazz Chisholm went on the IL with a lower back injury. And uh, what else? Some maybe some disappointing seasons thus far. We can hit on a couple people uh, players that maybe aren't living up to what people had hoped they would do. One would be Bo Bichette for Toronto, just hitting 255. Corey Seager with Texas is not having a great season hitting 229. And then we talked before about Juan Soto. Now he's only hitting 224, but he does have that high on base percentage. It's like 370 or whatever it is. He just honestly needs more lineup protection. He has walked more than anyone else in baseball by far. Get this, he has 63 walks year to date. 49 is the next closest player in baseball. And then if you look at kind of your average star player like Trout and you know some of those guys we mentioned before, they're, they all have you know walks in the in numbers in like the mid 30s, and so and and Juan Soto has 63, so he just he needs some lineup protection. Uh, Bobby Witt Jr. in Kansas City might be another one. Still a little disappointing. A hot prospect, um, not a prospect. I mean he's in the majors, but it was a hot prospect. But he's hitting just 243 with only a 291 on base percentage. Trevor Story in Boston, they picked him up this year. He has not been doing great with hitting only 224. Brian Hayes, another one. We, he was a promising uh, player for Pittsburgh. I think some big things expected for him this year. But And he's been okay. He hasn't been bad, but he hasn't been great. And then Cody Bellinger. I don't know what's going on with Cody Bellinger. You know, he had that hot rookie season and just has not been able to repeat that. He's only hitting 209 for the Dodgers. Wander Franco is another one, I think. You know, he's young, obviously. Not having a bad season, but... He's not necessarily lighting it up either. You know, he came out hot and hasn't been doing so great since then. Um, what yeah, else? Let's talk like pitchers. Top 10 strikeouts. Yeah, either. we could touch on that. So, like, that's one of the reasons I don't really, you know, even though Schwarber is sort of atop all the stat lists, you know, he's also third most in strikeouts. Trevor Story, that's one of the reasons he's not doing so great. He's sixth most in strikeouts. You know, Julio Rodriguez, that hot prospect for Seattle, seventh most in strikeouts. Bellinger. Bo Bichette, Aaron Judge are 13th, 14th, and 15th, respectively, in terms of having the most strikeouts of anyone in baseball. So um, now Judge is about the only one on that list that you could argue is having a, a great season. Um, let's talk pitchers for a second because there's some – I know pitchers, again, don't get a lot of hobby love, but there are some really interesting and fantastic seasons being put together by – by some interesting players. So the first one, we've talked about this one before, Sandy Alcantara. Uh, he's got a one point, he's with Miami, got a 1.95 ERA, a .95 whip on the season with an eight and three record uh, over the course of 115 a third inning so far. His stuff is relatively cheap. You know, he, you can get his first Bowman an autograph card for under a hundred bucks. Um, but he's one to look at because he's not, he's not just a, anomaly this year he's one that has for the last several years been putting together some really strong seasons and if he can you know his the season he's having so far again we're we're still young right the season's early not quite halfway through yet but you know that 195 ERA 0.85 that's the kind of numbers DeGrom was putting together last year so and that would put him on pace if he were to keep that up for the rest of the season. I mean, it would challenge, you know, some some of the greatest pitching seasons of all time, like Bob Gibson, what was it, 68? Forget the year, but there was that sort of incredible season that Bob Gibson put together. But he might potentially give that a run for money, but long way to go there. Um, Justin Verlander is the first one to 10 wins. He's, what, 38, 39 years old? 
just keeps cranking out. He has a 2.03 ERA, .83 whip, 10-3 record, 90 strikeouts in 97 third innings. So it doesn't look like he's lost anything as he's gotten older. And by the way, his rookie card, we've talked about it before. There's a little debate about is it in the 06, is it in the 05. Technically, officially, if you will, Beckett would say 06 is his rookie card. But his first cards were actually in the 05 sets, and those are the ones that I think by most people in the hobby will largely recognize as his rookie cards, and they also carry the, the higher value. So like as an example, his 2006 tops in a PSA 10 sells for about $90, and that's been flat over the last couple of years. Pop counts around 700 on that, while his 2005 tops in a PSA 10 sells for about $400, so what, four to five times that of the 06. The pop count on that is actually higher at about 1100 um, and that card, though, is down over the past year. It was upwards of about $500. Um, but if you pan out longer to a couple years ago, it's actually up. It was selling for two to $300. But nonetheless, so you can get some, you know, Verlander's rookie cards for pretty decent price. He's going to go down as, as one of the all-time greatest pitchers in baseball. Another pitcher to talk about is Shane McClanahan from Tampa Bay. He's in his second season, but man, is he looking good. He had a really nice rookie campaign, and he's following it up with an absolutely outstanding second season. A 1.77 ERA with a .83 whip, has 123 strikeouts in just 91 and a third innings, and he's got an 8-3 and three record. So um, he's one to look at. His stuff is really cheap. He's kind of off the radar for a lot of folks, probably because of his age. He's 25 years old. It's young, but as far as a second-year player is concerned, probably maybe, you know, give one, he's a pitcher, two, little on the older side as far as prospects are concerned. But anyway, and then, of course, we've talked before about Cor- Corbin Burns, um, Shohei Otani, and then I also like a guy like Robbie Ray. And then one last one I'll leave you with is Brandon Woodruff is back. He went, uh, he was, he plays for Milwaukee. He's a pitcher. Uh, he was on the injured list for the past month, but he came back through five innings of two hit ball, only giving up one earned run. He struck out 10. Keep an eye on him. I think he's one to watch because, you know, remember him and Burns last year, I think both could have, Burns got the Cy Young, but I think Woodruff was certainly in the conversation and they both pitched for Milwaukee. Milwaukee has quite the one-two punch with both Burns and Woodruff atop their uh, atop their rotation. Uh, although, remember last time we talked about how Corbin Burns' record wasn't so great, but Anyway, so just that, just kind of those touch on some of the players and kind of what's been happening in, in baseball over the past week. So that's all I got there. You want to go to uh, free agent NBA free agency next, or you yeah. want to do hockey? Uh, I don't care. What do you want to do? Let's do NBA. All right. All right. Well, we'll uh, kind of move through this quickly, just because we say that about everything, and then we don't. And then we take well, <laughs> no, I mean like like I'm not gonna go into it like super, you know, detailed about this stuff because. Lots of moves just a in lot the last of moves, day or two. But, yeah, like, there's going to be more stuff, um, obviously. So, you know, I, I think the, the one that's obviously the, like the topper is Katie uh, requested a trade, which is actually has nothing to do with free agency at all. But Kevin Durant, for those that don't mm-hmm. know the acronym. He requested a trade. He said he would prefer the Suns or the Heat uh, as his preferred destinations. Now, hold on. Don't you think that's interesting? Because two things I want to ask you about on this. One is that both – Suns and Heat were the number one seeds this past year. There's another similarity between those two, and I think is why it's not the, not, not the fact that they're the number one seed. But what's your second thing? Well, well that, my second question was, is it interesting that he requests the trade after Kyrie Irving opted into his player option? Well, that is interesting, but the reason that he said that he requested the trade was because 
he said there's kind of a lack of leadership and like structure with the Brooklyn organization. Um, he, he just feels like there's not a lot of structure. They don't really have a good system, whatever. There's a lack of leadership, which that's why I say that the, the fact that he prefers the Suns and the Heat really makes a lot of sense with that line of thinking because those are the two teams that are probably like the most like systemed type teams in yeah. the NBA. Yep. Um, they kind of always go the same speed limit. They're very known for, you know, what they do in their culture and their their infrastructure, their system. I feel system. like he probably would be a better fit for Phoenix than Miami. I would Wouldn't agree. that be interesting I, I can, because it would I can put better him up against Golden State? I can better see him in a Suns jersey than I can in a Heat jersey, I'm going to be honest. Um, but it's interesting, and they don't have to trade him, obviously. He actually just started a four-year extension yesterday that he signed last summer, which is interesting. Um, so whether or not he moves... I'm not sure. I think the first thing that they're going to do, they're going to try and re-recruit him. I think that's the best course of action just because they just, you know, he's obviously just started that extension. That extension, They actually look pretty good on paper with all the pieces they've got, and they re-signed a bunch of guys. They got Royce O'Neal from the Jazz in a trade this offseason. So I feel like they could maybe persuade him to stay. Um, even if they do feel like they need to move him, it's going to be a while before we see that just because – Obviously, I think they're going to try and do that first. And if they have to move them, they're going to make sure that they're going to get um, what they need in return. Let me and ask that's going you, to really be beneficial for them. Do you think that this is – like, does he want to play with Kyrie or, or does he want to be away from Kyrie? And part of the reason I ask, does Brooklyn have the opportunity – so Kyrie opted in, but could Brooklyn still trade Kyrie? Yeah. Well, no, I don't. there's no issue with those two. Those two are good friends. And they both came to Brooklyn – like to play together that's why they came to Brooklyn um so I don't have like those two guys like they're still friends um they're still tight so I don't think it has anything to do with that okay. but I think if they do move KD depending on what they get for him you'll probably see them move Kyrie too it just depends on what they are what they try to do with that trade and I'll also say with those two teams a trade could get pretty complicated another reason this could take a while to happen even if they do trade him because just in terms of the pieces that they have to to move the Suns, they you know they're probably going to include Aiton in a package like that's like the most logical course of action for them to do but there's some there's some weird stuff with contracts with Aiton and like the type of free agent that he is and you know with him being like still on that kind of like rookie contract that he uh and he's a former first overall draft pick mm-hmm. for the Suns so if he that, wants out not, I don't know that he wants out, but um, they uh, they would probably have to include a third team in that trade, which you know gets complicated. And again, Miami, I'm not sure what pieces they have to really give up for for a Kevin Durant, where where a Miami that kind of wants to run it back. Um, and then you also have the situation with like rookie extensions, because like Simmons is on a rookie extension, so is Bam Adebayo, and and Devin Booker is finishing his, I believe. So like those two couldn't go to the Nets while Simmons is. So you know it just gets a little weird. Well, so it's gonna Booker, be a little bit. Devin so. Booker just signed an extension. A he did. Extension. He did. And that'll start, um, I think, next year or something like that. But so that's what I'm saying. Like you know that he requested a trade, but what will happen is probably we're not probably not gonna see what's gonna come of that for a little while. So you know everybody kind of watching like it's probably going to be a little bit before anything happens i feel like i could see him going to phoenix i could see miami i could see miami getting donovan mitchell yeah that's that's i honestly think that would be probably more beneficial just in terms of what you 
would have to give up because you have to give up a lot to get Kevin Durant. Yep. Um, but we'll talk about some extensions. Uh, like you said, Booker signed an extension, big extension. He's also reportedly going to be the cover athlete for 2K23, which is interesting. Um, is there a curse on that like there was in Madden football? I don't know if there is. People say but like the last few, I don't think so. Um, Nikola Jokic got the largest contract in NBA history, which is a five-year, almost uh, up to $270 million deal um, to remain in Denver, I think, with, with uh, bonuses. So that's the biggest contract ever. That's so, nuts. Here's my question for you about him and about Denver and that is that so remember they had Murray and and uh, Porter Jr. out they're supposed to get them both back but I was looking at uh, Michael Porter Jr. and I guess my question is is he going to pan out or is he going to be a bust he's had a history of back problems he was a stud in high school but he only ended up playing in like three college games because of a back injury declared for the draft he's now had three surgeries on his back and so, I mean, what do you think about him? I mean, I mean he... it's, it's hard to say, but I know that he he didn't think he was going to even be able to play in the NBA when he was, uh, you know, declaring for the draft. He thought he was – they basically told him that, you know, because of his back it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, pan out. So he thought he wasn't going to play, and then he figured it out, got healthy. So I, I'm really uh, unfortunate uh, it's because a big he question was an mark. absolute I mean, stud. and he's still really good. I mean, when he played, um, you know, last season before he got injured, he was playing really, really well. So – I don't know. It'll be interesting to see for sure. It's just kind of hard to say. Yeah. Um, but if he's playing, you know, Denver's going to be great. I mean, that's a big piece for Denver. Yeah. Um, Jaw agreed to a five-year rookie max extension. Jaw Morant. Um, Ma- Carl Anthony Memphis. Towns, four-year extension with the Timberwolves. Uh, Bradley Beal uh, returned. He, he opted out of his uh, player option, but he returned on a five-year um, extension with the Wizards. He'll still be with the Wizards. So let's talk about Carl Anthony Towns for a minute because the big breaking news is we're starting to record, which is a big deal, I think, for the Timberwolves, is uh, Rudy Gobert. Yeah. Well, you want to hear what they gave up to get him? It's nuts. Hold on. Let me pull it up. They gave up, like, three starters to get this guy. This has got to be one of the most lopsided deals I've ever seen in my life. I mean, Ru- Rudy Gobert is a huge piece, but, like, good Lord, they gave up so much to get him. Like, well, Gobert is, while you're looking that up, Gobert is a three-time it. NBA Defensive Player of the Year, which you have to think, because, right, that was kind of the knock on Carl Anthony Towns, right? So now you couple him with Towns, plus you still have Ant-Man. So I, I mean, just think this is an incredible trade for the Jazz, honestly. I think... But but if you're Minnesota and you want to win now, remember, Minnesota really should have won that series against the Grizzlies, against Jaw. They blew some big leads Look at what they gave up, though. I mean, they gave up Malik Beasley, who was one of their biggest scorers. They gave up Patrick Beverly, who's their agitator and was kind of, you know, something part some played some part of the heart and soul of the team. Um, you know, Bull Marrow, I don't even really know who that is. Walker Kessler was a good role player. Jared Vanderbilt, you know, played good minutes. And they gave up like four first round picks and a pick swap over the next like five years or so. Or like, wow. Actually, seven years. So like, and they get Timberwolves get Rudy Gobert. That's it. Now Rudy Gobert, like, yeah, he's a really really great player. But to give up all that to get him and already have to already have um, a center in Carl Anthony Towns. Yeah, that means that cat moves to the four, which would actually be I think interesting just because of Rudy Gobert. You know, he always gets kind of exposed in the playoffs because he's the Jazz's only rim protector. He doesn't really have much of an offensive game besides catching lobs, even though he's like 7'1", 7'2", and really strong. 
Um, you know, he's, he's in like no back to the basket game at all. So he kind of doesn't do that much on offense besides set screens and just kind of, you know, do still do like the dirty work, but like, which is important, but like in the playoffs, everybody always been asking, like, is he really beneficial in the playoffs or does he just kind of get exposed? And I think in a lot of cases, in, in certain matchups, he just gets exposed because if you get him out of the paint, you can get in there. Now, the interesting thing with the Timberwolves is if you have Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert, that kind of takes away the, you know, only having one big, you know, shot blocker type thing. Because mm-hmm. Carl Anthony Towns can definitely develop that part. Then you have, you know, your big center who can play back to the basket. Rudy Gobert can catch lobs. So it might be a good situation for Rudy. I'm just, it'll be really interesting to watch it play out in terms of how they decide to use him. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, it'll be interesting for Cat to move to the fourth. So that's just overall really kind of weird and interesting. Um, so, two questions for you then on um, moving on to, we'll go to the Trailblazers and then I want to go to the 76ers. So, Trailblazers signed Gary Payton the second, and they also, uh, Protedly, anyway, agree to an extension with Anthony. Is it Simons? Yes, Simons. They got Simons. he got four years, hundred million. Um, so they're definitely on like a, you know. And they got Dame. And I they mean, have are Dame they, there. Are they just too guard heavy again? I feel like Portland has been too yes. small the last several years. Yes, it's interesting because the Portland Trailblazers they really want to. You know, last year they decided that it was going to be bad while, you know, Dame was injured. But now that Damon isn't injured, they've made it clear to him that they're going to try and win now. Um, they're not going to rebuild yet. They're going to build around Damian Lillard. But the roster that they've put together right now isn't really much for contention. It's kind of a stretch to say that they could make the playoffs in the Western, like a really deep Western conference. Damon would have to have a really good season, and so with Simons. So, But they're not really contenders yet. But, I mean, it's interesting to see – kind of what other moves they make because you know they're probably not done yet well and they re-signed uh, or reportedly signed an extension with um yusuf nurkic yep they got nurkic i think yeah like you said gary payton the second which that one's interesting i like gary payton the second i just think with simons and dame and i don't know i mean anyway but i think well real quick on the gary payton the second thing i will mention that the warriors the only player they've re-signed is Kevon Looney. They've lost four role players. Gary Payton II, um, Nemanja Bialica, he's going overseas for some reason. I'm not really sure why, because they wanted to re-sign him. Uh, Juan Toscano-Anderson went to the Lakers. And then Otto Porter Jr., who was actually a very, very important player for them in that the finals and the playoff run, went to Toronto. So waiting, awaiting to see what happens there. All right, so I want to ask you and talk about 76ers because in our last show you said kind of watch where P.J. Tucker goes because wherever he goes, he, they win. And so I thought it was really interesting that he went to the 76ers because the very, 76ers yeah. are, have been a team that's been in contention. Obviously, you got Joel Embiid, potentially Harden, depending what happens there. They will have Harden next. They will have Harden. Almost confirmed they will have Harden. Seth Curry. Right? They're, yes. They, they're going to get. Yeah. No, no, so, no, no, no. Seth Curry's in Brooklyn. Seth, oh, Curry, went, Seth Curry's in Brooklyn. That's right. He yeah, went in yeah. Brooklyn. Yeah. Who else? I feel like I'm missing somebody on the 76ers. Well, but anyway, but Curry's that's. Maxi. And so now you've got PJ Tucker added to the mix. So there's 76ers. What does that do for them? Well, PJ Tucker, I'm not surprised he went here at all. It was probably the one that I would say I, who was most likely to go to for multiple reasons. First of all, Mammy, I think, almost tried to make a trade. Um, to get Thibel for P.J. Um, with 76 or so. They're kind of already looking at that now. 
P.J. Tucker, he's going back to play with James Harden like he did in Houston. So, like, those guys played together for a very long time. They know each other very well, so that's not surprising. Um, the 76ers, I believe, traded Danny Green. So, to bring in P.J., another really great um, shooter, especially from the corner, another great defender. It's going to really help them out combined with Thibel. They've got a really, really good defensive team. And as I say, James Harden is going to stay in Philly. It's reported he, he opted out, but he's going to do – what Tom Brady did where he's going to take a little bit less money so that they have more cap space to sign better players, which I think is a testament to James Harden wanting to win, wanting to win really yeah. badly. So, Well, here's an interesting, from a card perspective, if you think the 76ers, you know, with some of these moves are going to, you know, be in contention next year, then look at Joel Embiid. He's, his rookie cards are in the 2014 sets. His uh, prism in a PSA 10 base sells for about $200. That's down from about four dollars to $500 over the past year. And the silver on that sells for about $2,000. That one has really not moved over the last year. It's been flat. He has a National Treasures RPA rookie patch autograph, uh, serial number to 99 in a BGS 9.5 slash 10. Uh, 9.5 for the card, 10 on the auto. That sells for about $10,000, but that's a really low pop count. There's only been three sales on that one over the past year, but you could look at his stuff. And then uh, moving on from PJ, kind of in the same vein, um, JaVale McGee is going to the Mavericks. I think JaVale McGee, you know, say whatever you want to say about him. You know, Shaq's in a fool, kind of faces Shaq's in a fool. He's a really good player, and he's kind of one of those guys, I think, where he goes, teams tend to win. That's not a coincidence. Um, he's a very good. He, you know, he went. He was on the Warriors. He was just on the Suns. He Mavs have made a couple of interesting moves, mm-hmm. some good moves. And know. he actually, you know, he played probably one of the, his best seasons ever with the Suns last season. So him going to the Mavericks um, is interesting. Oh, we won with the Lakers in 2020. So him going to the Mavericks is interesting. I think that's a really good pickup for them. But they did lose Jalen Brunson, who went to a four-year year deal with the Knicks. But you know, the Mavs are getting some size, so that's good for them. Next, I'm going to say uh, John Wall did, in fact, sign with the Clippers. He got his contract buyout from Houston. He's got a two-year deal with the Clippers, so they now have their big three. You know, I was saying this maybe last time, maybe the time before, whenever it was, when we were talking about the end of the NBA Finals. I mean, I was going to say, you know, the Clippers are, you know, a very team, a team that people are forgetting about because of injuries, but are going to be, I think, one of the top two teams in the West next season. Um, this just kind of cements that with the moves they've already made they've already re-signed a lot of their role players too so that's pretty big um zion he's gonna sign an extension with the pelicans and then malcolm brogdon was traded to the celtics um for daniel tice aaron neesmith um two guys who don't really get that many minutes um as well as a pick so that's a really good pickup for the celtics too and by the way Going back to John Wall, uh, his rookie card is in the 2010 sets. I'm looking at a National Treasures RPA, PSA 10, serial number to 99, that sold. This was so it's only a pop count of two, but it sold less than a year ago for about $1,500. So anyway, so you could probably pick up some of you if you like John Wall or, or like the Clippers, and um, you can pick up some of his stuff for relatively inexpensive in comparison to what other players similar cards go for mm-hmm. and then two more things oh we we, we missed um Dejounte murray is going to atlanta so that's you know gets trey a little more help gets another all-star in there that's pretty cool yeah it should be interesting uh, to see them play together and then finally i will say that victor oladipo has re-signed with the miami heat on a one-year deal so i think this is an interesting one to 
mention here because you always talk about like one year prove it deals. Yeah. This I is like this is very this is very much a one year prove it deal for Victor Oladipo because he's been injured the past he hasn't played a full season for like the past two or three years. He's gonna finally be able to play a full season. You know, before he got injured, he was a third team All NBA guy, All NBA defensive team guy. Um, he turned down like a three year like forty something mil like and actually maybe it was sixty something million deal, and then also turned down a two year like forty something million deal, and he got hurt again when he finally ended up in Miami. So this is kind of a chance for him to show everybody that he can play he was definitely showing really great flashes in the playoffs for Miami so I think with the full offseason to get healthy and to play with the team and have that chemistry next season he could definitely he could be really really good so definitely one to watch that's one of my fantasy sport strategies yeah. is find the guys that are either on one-year deals or that are in the last year of a deal where they're going to be free agents because typically they end up having one of their best years statistically anyway which is great for fantasy sports it's been a very successful strategy for me yeah i would say <laughs> yeah if you're looking for a guy like that that's oladipo this season by the way kevin durant from a card perspective is an interesting one to look at as well his rookie cards are in the 2007 sets and his stuff has come down you know and so like if you look at his tops uh base card there's a i'll, I'll, I'll go to the black border there's also an orange border but the black border in a PSA 10 has a pop count of about 140 and sells for around $2,000. That's roughly flat from two years ago, but it's down from about eight to $10,000 from a year ago. So his stuff has come down quite a bit. And so anyway, so depending on what happens with Kevin Durant, he could be an interesting one to watch. He he also has, by the way, a card that I kind of like. And, and some folks, if you like the 86 Fleer basketball, set some people don't some people do but there's a 2007 Fleer set that's the retro design from the 86 and Kevin Durant's got a rookie card in that one it's relatively popular in a PSA 10 has a pop count of just 184 that one recently sold for $465 which is down from about a thousand dollars two years ago and it was as high as four to six thousand dollars just about a year ago so a lot of Kevin Durant stuff is down quite a bit so there could be he could be one of those ones whereas if the market continues to sell off and you wanted to collect his stuff it might be an opportunity to pick some spots to get some good cards for a decent price all right uh, well that's all i had for that um obviously there's probably going to be a lot more moves you know as the week goes on but that's kind of what we thought are probably the most major ones to be paying attention to from uh these past two days you know something big's probably going to happen like the next hour but you know whatever well that's the way it goes yeah all right, so we move on. Let's jump to hockey. Uh, so real quick here, the Avs win the Stanley Cup. If you have been living under a rock and haven't heard by now, uh, they won game six by a score of two to one. Actually, Tampa came back and got game five, uh, but then uh, Avs got game six and won the Stanley Cup. And Nathan McKinnon scored a goal, also got an assist in game six. Uh, Stamkos for Tampa Bay scored the lone goal for them. Get this, Colorado was 9-1 and one was their record on the road during the playoffs. It's pretty interesting. The, um, and the Avs, this is another interesting stat that I was looking at. The Avs outshot Tampa Bay 211 shots on goal to just 162 shots on goal for Tampa. Both teams scored about the same percentage. So the Avs, their, the number of goals they got were about 9.48%. 
of the shots on goal. Tampa Bay had about 9.26% of shots on goal, but the big difference was that the Avs just had so many more shots. I mean, you're talking about, what, 50, 50 more shots across, what, six games. So that's Jeez. what does that equate to? That's almost not quite 10, maybe eight or nine more shots per game than what Tampa was getting. Let's see. In fact, here's what was interesting. Game four was the only game that Tampa Bay outshot the Avalanche, 39 to 37. But the Avs actually won that game in overtime, three to two, uh, which is kind of interesting. The Avs are the Stanley Cup champions. So no surprise to anybody. Yep. And Kale McCarr won the Conn Smythe Trophy. Uh, he's just the third defenseman, age 23 or younger, to win that trophy. That's that trophy for those that don't know is basically the MVP of the playoffs and it was well deserved it was McCarr's third season but in this look listen to what he did in his third season he won the Norris trophy the Conn Smythe trophy and now and the Stanley Cup all in the same season not bad uh, only Bobby Orr and Nicholas Lidstrom Nicholas Lidstrom I think so I forgot I'm gonna probably butcher that name but anyway only those two defensemen have accomplished that feat um, Nathan McKinnon I think last time I said that he was 29 years old He's actually not. He's 26 years old. And McCarr, what? I think last time I said, I, I was wrong about everything last time because I think I said McCarr was a rookie and, and his rookie season and McKinnon was 29. Well, McCarr is in his third season and McKinnon is 26. So set the record straight there. But nonetheless, I do think this could be start of the start of something bigger for Colorado and the Avalanche because they have a good team. They're very young. And so we'll see what happens with them. But Kale McCarr had three goals and seven points in the finals. He had eight goals and 29 points in the playoffs in just a total of 20 games. And the um, it was kind of funny because the uh, the Avs uh, in winning the cup, they not long after, right, pretty much right after they got it on the ice, they dented the cup. The, I forget the the player that had it was skating over so they could take a picture with it and he like tripped and fell and the cup fell in the ice dented it and then get this i also saw a story where the cup got uh, delivered to the wrong address it was supposed to go to the captain of nice. the avalanche got delivered like to the next door neighbor because the, the the you know whoever it was ups or whoever it was that did it mixed up the delivery so the cup has had quite an adventure which i think it typically does Anyway, but so congrats to the Avs. They kept, remember, Tampa was going for a three-peat. They would have been the first team since, what, the I think the 1980s or maybe early 90s that a team had three-peat. Now, we've talked about Kale McCarr in the past, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on him, but I will say there's been a lot of discussion. His stuff is really starting to take off. A lot of talk about whether he's the most collectible defenseman since Bobby Orr. Because remember, defensemen, you know, generally not as much hobby love kind of like pitchers and kind of like you know non-quarterback players in football pitchers and baseball well in hockey goalies defensemen not as much as the you know the offensive guys um, but people are kind of comparing McCarr to Bobby Orr and when you look at you know like Orr is among the top three collected players of all time um, kind of behind Wayne Gretzky and Gordy Howe and then you also got guys like Sidney Crosby, of course, Alexander Ovechkin, Connor McDavid, and now Nathan McKinnon's going to be in that mix, Mario Lemieux, Patrick Waugh, uh, Martin Brodeur. Um, all of those are kind of popular um, players in the uh, sports card hobby. And if you look at over the last 12 months prior to um, this past weekend, there were over 10,000 Kale McCarr listings that sold on eBay for more than $1.2 
and uh, one of his we talked about how the cup is from upper deck is one of the higher end kind of like national treasures type product well, one of his rookie cards from the 2019-20 upper deck the cup set just recently sold for over thirteen thousand dollars and let's see what else on him so if you look at his um, comparison let's compare his cards to Bobby Orr so if you look at Bobby Orr's rookie card it's a little different but because there's only basically one of them it's in the 1966 top set there are no PSA 10s there's only one PSA 9 the PSA 8 has a pop count of just 47 and the last sale on that was in May of 2021 so over a year ago for $42,000 the most recent sale I could find was a PSA 6 that just sold about a week ago on June 21st for $12,000. So in total of that 1966 Tops card for a rookie card for Bobby Orr, there's only 1,154 of them graded by PSA. So in comparison, a car that's used his upper deck Young Guns, and uh, it's in the 2019-20 set. A PSA 10 has recently been selling for about $1,000 to maybe $1,200. And that, in comparison, was about six to eight hundred dollars, maybe you know, roughly six months ago, give or take. Now, Bobby Orr does have. If you're interested in Bobby Orr, he does have a more affordable but popular uh, card in the 1969 Opeachy, and in a mid-grade kind of say five or six, um, that sells for about four to six hundred bucks. So you can take a look at that. All right, and then the only other thing I had in hockey was the Hall of Fame class yes. inductees were announced, and so you had uh, Roberto Luongo. And you had brothers Henrik and Daniel Sedin. You had Daniel Alfredson. And then you had Rika Salonen and Herb Carnegie. Those are all very uh, the uh, mouthfuls of names. Yeah. But it was a big day for uh, Vancouver because the Sedin brothers. And then I think, um, who was it? Was it, was it, uh, uh, was it Longo? Who was it? Yeah, I think Luongo also played for Vancouver. He played for a few teams. but So Vancouver, technically, you could say, had three players um, get uh, inducted into the 2022 class. Um, Salonen is actually a legend for the Finnish women's hockey program. She had a long and prolific career at an international level in the European championships. And, uh, and then Carnegie, um, he actually died in 2012, but he was inducted as a builder he was um, of Jamaican descent, and uh, he, he did try out with the Rangers, I, I guess I read, I think in 1948. It was 10 years before Willie O'Ree became the first black player to enter the NHL. Carnegie was never able to break through the league's color uh, barrier, but um, is, um, was, I've, I've heard him kind of described as um, probably the best player to not play a game in the NHL. Hmm. So good, good to see him. Uh, become an inductee to the or be part of the 2022 Hall of Fame class. Okay, well that's the show for today. Thank you to Chris McGill, co-founder of Car Ladder, for joining us. Enjoyed having him on the show. And Brandon, go ahead and take us out. Um, yeah, I also want to thank Chris for coming on. It was fun to talk with him. Hope you guys all enjoyed it as well. Uh, but please reach out to us. Give us your feedback. We want to use that feedback to make the show better. Bring you more of the content that you want. Find the most valuable, so let us know your thoughts. Also, check us out on social media. Subscribe, follow our pages. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And check out our website, www.the615collector.com, and subscribe to our email list. Yeah, please tell your family and friends about us as well. Encourage them to listen to the show. Follow us on your favorite podcast outlet as well. If you would, that would be great. And so that is it. Show number 38 is in the books. 
Thanks again, everyone. We will see you all next Friday, same time, same place, here on the 615 Collector.